welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. Thank you to FIU's Disability Resource Center for providing transcription services. In this episode, I talk with Kay Agbabiyi, who is a prison abolitionist in Washington Heights, New York. Kay explains that prison abolition is a dual process of creating the world we want to live in, which includes new ways of addressing harm and working to close prisons now. Kay connects mass incarceration and policing to the history of chattel slavery, all rooted in anti-blackness, and discusses how defunding the police is one part of the overall goal of prison abolition. They talk about how to get involved in prison abolition on a local level, tracking government budgets to see how much spending is going to policing and the construction of new jails, and connecting with others who want to do something about it. Kay explains how they got into this work, which started with organizing for racial justice, LGBTQ justice, and reproductive justice before focusing on prison abolition. They share about being a survivor and organizing with other survivors who do not want incarceration to be done in their name. We discuss accountability and safety, as well as links to child welfare and social work. Kay shares recommended readings for people who want to learn more. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Hey Kay, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a long time coming. I'm so excited to talk with you about your prison abolition activist work. And just to get right into it, since this is such a big topic, what are some of the core concepts of prison abolition? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I think the core concepts of prison abolition are wrapped up in just redefining how we handle harm and making sure that we're doing it in ways that respect the dignity of all people who are involved in situations where harm occurs instead of what we have right now, which is a society that throws people away or disappears them um, through the prison industrial complex. And so we have that one area of um, abolition where we're working to like build a society that um, handles harm in a, in a more humane way. But then we have another part of prison abolition, which is where we're just focusing on creating a world without prisons. So we're organizing, we're talking to people on the inside, we're writing, um, we're engaged in advocacy work just to get rid of the prison industrial complex. So it's kind of like a two-part movement where we're taking down old structures, but we're also dedicating a lot of just as much time to creating new structures that we want to see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, if you just take it all down, it's like, then what is there? right, to address some of these issues. It requires a lot of imagination, no? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we're, it's going to require all of us to use our imagination because um, no one alive right now has ever lived in a time without prisons. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's, it's impossible, but that does mean that it's going to be a difficult um, thing to work towards and we need as many people as possible. I think one thing that keeps me focused is just um, I mean, a lot of people have talked about this, but Angela Davis comes to mind. Um, just the amount of imagination that um, abolitionists had in the U.S. when they were working to end chattel slavery and just how they had never lived in a society where Black people weren't enslaved. 
Um, and they still worked every day to do something about it. And so I think it's going to, the current abolitionist movement right now is going to require that same amount of imagination that they had back then. Yeah. And can you talk about, you know, the link between chattel slavery and mass incarceration? Yeah. I mean, they're clearly connected by like um, a really strong link and that link is anti-blackness and um, that, that, link has like been carried throughout the history of the U.S. So after slavery was ended, we then had slave patrols, which morphed into the current um, policing structure that we have today. Um, And so policing has never actually been about really keeping people safe, per se. It's been about controlling the movement and surveilling um, Black people. And that's really what abolitionists are trying to get everyone to realize just that the structure of policing that it stands is inherently anti-black. It's inherently classist. And because of that, it can't be reformed. Right. So this gets straight into defund the police as well, correct? Yes. Um, which is really popular um, lately. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the, the connection between the two? Yeah. So defunding the police Um, has kind of really taken off, especially after the George Floyd protests. And it's just um, this idea that basically we have too much money that is being allocated in our local government budgets towards policing, and that money could be used for other things that are actually about improving people's quality of life, like education or healthcare, or that money should just go directly back into the hands of community members. Um, And so for... Some people might think that defunding the police doesn't literally mean defunding the police, but as abolitionists, that's exactly what we mean. And we see it, we don't see it as an end goal. We just see it as one of the steps, one of the many steps that we'll have to take to eradicate the prison industrial complex. So it's, it's not our end goal. It's just a tactic that we're using. Right. So prison abolitionists have really been talking about defund the police long before there was a hashtag for that. Yeah. um, And again, it wasn't the only thing that we were talking about, but it was a necessary step that we saw that would need to happen for us to have total abolition. Because we're not just trying to get rid of police um, or even literal prisons. We're trying to get rid of um, pro-cop propaganda or like e-carceration, which is commonly like known as is like ankle monitoring. So the police are just one's one chunk of a really, really large system that we were trying to get rid of. You know, when I think of prison abolition, I also think, as you said, it's such a large system. So where do you even start? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me personally, my work in abolition has really grown when I started focusing on local movements. So in New York, I was a member of a collective of people who were working to stop the mayor's jail plan um, to build five, four to five borough-based jails um, using eight to $11 billion to do so. Um, and so through working on that campaign and then working um, in collectives right now um, that kind of like branched off from that campaign, it's really given me a good 101 primer to start um to start like abolitionist work. So in New York, we're focusing on tracking the budget, targeting city council members, the mayor, the governor. Um, We have people who are working um, day and night on different aspects of local government to analyze things and then also figure out who the key players are. 
So one good way that people could start, um, I guess, engaging with abolition is finding out more about your local government and finding out how much the city or town that you live in, um, finding out how much of that budget is allocated towards policing and then getting a group of people who want to do something about it. Um, that's my first step that, that I would recommend. And how did you, you know, find that group of people? Cause you've talked about a couple coalitions and also I know that you have like your regular job, like at a nonprofit, but all your abolition stuff is like totally like you don't get paid for this. Like you're doing this on your own time. And I'm sure a lot of these collective members are as well, right? Like mm-hmm. prison abolition isn't something where it's like, oh yeah, like I got, I can get a job doing that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I, but I think that's really important and it shows your dedication and everyone's dedicated, everyone involves dedication to this struggle. But I also think it can be hard for people to know, like, who do I reach out to? You know, like, how do I get involved with this kind of work? Mm-hmm. And I think right now, a lot of people who weren't previously like activated or, or involved are kind of scrambling to find a place to get involved. Um, but I guess my key um, point of advice to finding a political home would be patience. Um, I've been doing this work for over six years now. Um, so I've been an organizer longer than I've been a social worker. And the first couple of years that I was organizing, it was really about me networking and getting to know different people, sharpening my political analysis, finding out what I wanted from a political home, um, and finding out what my political alignments were. And then the like four years after that is when I actually started feeling like a true organizer, like feeling like I was like deeply immersed in that. And so because I was deeply immersed, I had a lot of people that I could reach out to, to be like, Hey, I'm moving to New York. I want to get involved in this work. Do you have any people that you trust that you would connect me with? Mm -hmm. Um, So, and also a lot of these collectives are, they can appear to be a little closed off, but that's because we're working with sensitive information with people on the inside and we don't want to be infiltrated. So my advice for people who want to find a group um, is to go to a couple of actions, look around, figure out who's organizing the actions, and then talk to a couple people and see if you can go to like an interest meeting or have a one-on-one with them and then go from there. So you were talking about how before you became a social worker, you were doing organizing work. And I kind of wanted to explore that a little bit because I was eventually going to ask you how you got into this work, but you kind of started to go there. So can can you kind of talk about your own evolution with all this? Yeah. So I always cared about politics growing up because my mom always did. And it was a value that she instilled in me. But it wasn't until my sophomore year of college um, where I was at this really conservative school in South Georgia um, that I really started hanging out with people who identified as queer or people who were feminists or people who who had done the reading and who had actually like really come to conclusions about like their political or their moral compass. And so um, I was feeling really like energized and then my friend nominated me for this fellowship and I got to do the fellowship and I went to Chicago and that's where I met organizers. And that's when I was like, oh, like there are people out there who have the same views as me, but they're actually doing something about it daily. And from there, I was hooked. Um, I ended up gra- or I ended up transferring schools. I started going to um, protests and actions in Atlanta, and I started getting involved on um, campus. And then it kind of just blossomed. So I've been doing this for a while now. 
Um, but my work has primarily been around like racial justice, LGBTQ justice and reproductive justice. And I didn't get to really like, I didn't really start identifying as an abolitionist until I moved to Michigan for grad school. And that's when I started really engaging with the work of abolition. And I also unfortunately became a survivor and that's kind of what led me to um, reading more about it. But um, I would say that the majority of my organizing wasn't actually based in abolition. But you're able to apply what you learned from that organizing to the work now. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that, um, has made it such an easy transition, but also made it so something that I'm so passionate about is just that all of these different movements that I had been working on, um, they all tie to abolition, like racial justice, immigrant rights, reproductive justice, all of those social issues are, they're taking place in prisons. And not only that, they're actually magnified there. Um, And so I realized that if I wanted to get to the root cause of a lot of the other issues that I was working on, being an abolitionist was, I think, a good place for me to start. You know, and some stuff with you, since you and I first got in touch, I mean, your social media stuff is like really blown up. And <laughs> that it seems like it's the timing and your involvement with the protests. And I think you were helping coordinate like a bail fund. Is that correct? Yes. Can yeah. You just kind of talk about a little bit about that, too, so people understand like what you've what you're currently been up to with that. Yeah. So, I mean, when COVID hit, um, a lot of people in New York were scrambling to find something to do. And so a couple of us got together and started a mutual aid fund to give soap to people who are incarcerated on the inside. And um, along with that, Free Them All for Public Health, which is a campaign that I'm a part of, also launched. And things kind of just took off. I think because of COVID, um, a lot of people were like, um, they were... Well, they were already aware that these social issues existed, but I think it was just more, it was, everything was laid out for them more plainly. Um, And that kind of, that along with the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd kind of led us to the moment we are in right now where a lot of people are looking for content and information on abolition and defunding the police. Um, But what I've been up to lately, so the Soap Fund launch, we raised over $50,000 and we were just that money. Yeah, it was a great, um, it was a really great experience because we were also able to give a lot of money to other mutual aid funds. And then after that ended, um, I was working on, on Free Them All for Public Health, and we were also working on survivor defense campaigns. And then um, I launched with a small group of friends, the Disability Justice Mutual Aid Fund. And um, that fund was a short-term fund um, used to give money to disabled organizers who were working um, primarily around the Black Liberation protests. And through that fund, we were able to raise $65,000. So it's been a lot of fundraising, honestly, and distributing of money that's taken place in the past couple of months. But um, yeah, it's been it's been really hectic. Like I haven't had a moment like this in my entire organizing career. Wow. How are you feeling? <laughs> I feel... So last week I felt really irritated, (laughs) but this week I just feel exhausted, but I feel like things are finally like getting to a place where um, they're kind of getting a little bit back to normal, which is exciting, but also kind of frustrating. Um, I was talking to my mentor this morning and she was giving me a lot of advice. And one of the things that she told me was that I need to take breaks when it doesn't feel fun. 
And I guess that I never really thought of organizing that way. Um, And that's something that I've been thinking about all day. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting because, well, why don't you share? Why did you never think about it that way? Because I think this is important. Like people get full on into stuff and then burn out, you know, and it happens in social work. It happens in activism, right? Like it's, it's well documented. It's well talked about and but you're kind of like going through your own process with that right now it sounds like yeah I think that kind of like so yeah when I think about organizing I think about it as kind of my calling um and because of that that kind of makes me feel like a lot of this isn't optional so it's not just like oh I like organizing because it's fun I like doing it because I have dedicated a lot of time to this. A lot of people have dedicated a lot of time to teaching me. Um, and I feel like it's my responsibility to do something. I think it's everyone's responsibility to do something to improve the life, the lives of others. Um, so I'm not really thinking about it as, oh, this needs to be fun. I'm thinking about it more like, oh, what can I do to ensure that we win? And so hearing from um, my mentor that, or my mentor slash friend slash comrade that like, organizing or that the work that I'm doing needs to be fun was just affirming in the sense that like, I'm a human being, I need to do things that make me feel good too. And the work will always be there. Um, So I need to keep that in mind when I'm structuring my time. Yeah, that's, that's incredible advice, you know, and when you were talking about also the fundraising, whenever movements, well, first of all, prison is a big money industry and it just sucks money out of people, families, communities, right? And puts it to other people, family, and community. And then also with movements, right? Like that's the way movements have been shut down is people get locked up and it just drains resources. So the work you're doing, like fundraising isn't always enjoyable. It's obviously has a huge impact and it's so necessary, but you've got to like right? From like what your mentor saying is like, you got to find like, there's got to be like that passion, that feeling right still to like keep going. Definitely. Um, and sometimes it can feel like a chore, but I think in New York, I have the opportunity to build with a lot of different people and they help me, um, they help me focus on what it's, what's important to me. And so that can be really helpful. So what do you love about prison abolition work? Um, I think that the things that I love about prison abolition work are kind of reflected in how I feel about all organizing. And it's just the fact that, I mean, I'm navigating a lot of different identities that are heavily criminalized, and I'm also a survivor. And when I'm organizing, I feel like I'm in charge of the things that are happening to me. Um, When I'm not organizing, I'm like, oh, all of these bad things are happening in the world, and I I don't have a say in it. I can't do anything to control it. I can't do anything about it. And that can be really disempowering. But when I'm organizing, I'm like, you know what, at least I and a a couple of people that I trust are waking up every day to do something about the things that are happening. And we might not always win and we might not always get it right, but we'll be able to like look back on our lives and know that we did everything that we can. And so I think that that's what I love about prison abolition work, um, but also just organizing in general, just knowing that we're doing what we can. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times about being a survivor and the connection of being a survivor to this, to prison abolition. 
And obviously, you know, as much as you're comfortable speaking to anything I ask you, can you kind of like talk a little bit more about that? I think it's something that I think it's something that's important for people to hear about. Yeah. So I would identify my political home as survived and punished, um, specifically the New York chapter. And survived and punished is a volunteer group of people who are working to free criminalized survivors of domestic gender and sexual based violence. So a lot of the people that I'm organizing with are survivors as well. And I think that it's important for me to name that and to do this work because a lot of a lot of the growth that we've seen in terms of the prison industrial complex has been done supposedly to protect survivors. Um, you see it now, like even with the like Time's Up Fund, which came off of the Me Too movement, a lot of these different domestic violence um, and sexual violence nonprofits rely on funding um, that causes them to collaborate with police and the prison industrial complex. And so I think it's important for me as a survivor to make sure that I'm doing stuff to combat that and also um, to work with people who are saying that we don't want this done in our name. Um, we don't want to be supposedly protected in this way. Um, and we won't be we won't be the reason for the expansion of the carceral state. Mm. So what does accountability look like? Yeah, I mean, everyone has different definitions of accountability, but in today's society, a lot of people think that accountability is the same as punishment. But accountability is not coercive. Um, it's something that someone takes with the aid of their community, but they're not forced to take it because of their community. Um, they do it because they feel invested in the people that they're around um, and they want to strive to do better. And accountability is and my definition is working together with other people to take responsibility for the harm that you may have caused and working to prevent that harm from happening in the future. Um, and so that punishment teaches us kind of that if you, you do something bad, you are inherently bad. Um, and accountability, in my opinion, is more about like you did something that does not reflect your normal or your overall values. And so how are you going to work with your community to ensure that this doesn't happen again? You know, as you're talking about it and whenever kind of this conversation comes up, I think about how entrenched we are as a society in these concepts of protection, right? And and like and this directly connects to social work too, right? Because we're mandated reporters and it's all taught that like this is in the name of safety, right? Like it's for the children. So who can argue with that, right? And it's similar with locking someone up, like this is for public safety is what gets said, right? Which of course, who's safety? Mm -hmm. But we're so it's so deeply entrenched to the point where like some people, like social workers, if they choose to not go along with that they can like lose their license, they can lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. How do we navigate that? Yeah, I think it's important for social workers and every profession um, to start these conversations about abolition and to let people know that, again, like I was saying, that we don't want harm done in our name. Um, the thing about the prison industrial complex is it stops a lot of conversations. Um, we don't have to ever ask ourselves like why people engage in certain behaviors 
or we don't have to ask ourselves like what kind of support could be put in place to prevent this from happening? Um, because the prison industrial complex takes away her options to even answer those questions by immediately locking away people. Um, and so I think the way that we work through it is by asking those questions, um, by doing the reading, and also by realizing that we all have a part that we can play in working to close our working to close prisons and working to end the carceral state. And um, that that can start in our workplace. And so it involves creativity and it involves working with other people who are also abolitionists, but it can happen. Yeah. And just also to clarify, would you include the child welfare system within the carceral state? Yes, definitely. <laughs> and I think a lot of, I know a lot of people would as well. Um, it's coercive and it's deeply intertwined with policing. Um, to the point where a lot of people can't separate the two. Absolutely. They go together, right? They go together, um, drug offenses, uh, who gets, who's seen as not being worthy of ha- being a parent. Mm-hmm. And we know both disproportionately affect black and brown communities as well. Definitely. You know, there, there are some calls, some really strong calls lately with social work to support defunding the police and ending the child welfare system. I've never really seen that that this prominently ever before. I mean, it makes me hopeful. Yeah. And I think that a lot of social workers and other people are engaging with work um, that's being done by people who aren't technically professionals, um, who are handling like instances of harm, especially with parents, like domestic violence, etc. I mean, I think that a lot of social workers say that their goal is to work themselves out of a job. But I, I deeply mean that. My goal is to make sure that the things that I learned in my MSW program are available for everyone. And so that we don't have to rely on a profession to handle conflict or harm, but these resources are in the hands of communities. So for people who are um, you know, checking out the podcast and want to understand more, you've mentioned doing the reading a few times. Can you give like your top five, you know, these are like, this is like the place to start? Yeah. Um, I mean, everyone always says it and I'm going to say it too. Um, Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis, I think is required reading. Um, I would also say going to the website transformharm.org. There's a lot of resources on community accountability, transformative justice, restorative justice. Um, I would say reading any work by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, who is an abolitionist geographer, um, any work by Miriam Kaba, who I deeply, deeply trust and who has inspired so many people to go towards abolition. And then for social workers, I think the fifth resource I would recommend is this book called When the Welfare People Come by Don Lash, which really talks about radical social work, but also talks about the connections between policing um, and the child welfare system. Thank you so much. That's awesome. So, you know, another thing that's really cool that's happened with you lately is you got to be on a panel with Angela Davis. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was really surprising. Um, I got asked to be on the panel by someone I've been organizing with um, from afar for several years. Um, And she kind of was like, how would you feel about being on this panel? And I was like, oh, that would be cool. But I didn't really get my hopes up. 
but then it was, it, it was actually happening and it actually happened. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, this is someone who has inspired me. She's inspired so many people. Um, and she, she wanted to hear from all of us as well. Um, and I, I think it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I'm just really grateful that I had the chance to do that. What do you think is the most challenging aspect of this work? Um, the most challenging aspect has to be that it's deeply triggering. Like you're talking about really difficult subjects. Um, like I said, a lot of the people I organize with are also survivors. And also as my platform has grown, I've been the subject of a lot more harassment and like vitriol um, from people saying that I'm um, enabling abuse or I'm like um, an apologist for certain types of harm. And so the most difficult part is making sure that you're taking care of your mental health um, while dealing with all these really difficult subjects. Yeah. I've seen your posts about, you know, about what you're talking about. And, and um, you know, those people obviously want to shut down what you're doing. Yeah, they do. Um, and they do because I think that a lot of the work that I engage in requires a lot of self-reflection and also vulnerability. And people are afraid of that. Um, it's not just my work. It's anyone who's doing this work um, because we ask people to sit with difficult questions. Like what would a world with police without police look like? And what would it look like if we were all accountable for all of the harm that we've personally caused? And that can, that can make a lot of people feel a lot of discomfort and their first instinct is to kind of shut that down instead of sitting with that discomfort. Yeah. And like you said, when there's this big prison systems, it's, it just shuts everything down, except it doesn't shut down the money it generates. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, it just keeps that going. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable, right? Like you want to boost an economy in some rural community, build a prison, right? <laughs> and fill it with people from the city. Yeah. Right? That's just what happens like over and over and over again. Yeah. It's a money-making enterprise. And I think a lot of people thought that, the reason the issue with mass incarceration was just um, private prisons. Um, but I think a lot more people are learning now um, what abolitionists know, which is like the whole entire system is a money making enterprise from things like paying for communication or um, paying for like um, things that you need to live like food or um, toiletries, et cetera. Like all these things that, are taking place within prisons are lining the pockets of corporations. It's not just private prisons. Yeah. And I mean, all the consequences of having a record of spending time in prison. And I mean, I'm in, so I'm in Florida, right. And we passed legislation. So, you know, for felons to have the right to vote, like returning citizens is the, you know, is the term used and, and the state figured out a way to, you know, make that not happen too by charging people and say, well, if anyone still owes anything, right, then they can't vote. So, and we know that's going to directly affect the government here. Yeah. People are really afraid, I think, of um, abolitionists and also formerly and currently incarcerated people stepping into their power. Mm. Uh, that, that terrifies them. Absolutely. So, Kay, how can people support the work you're doing? Well, they can follow several accounts on Twitter. Um, they can follow Survived and Punished on Twitter at SurvivePunishedNY. Um, they can also follow me on Twitter at ShayButterFemme. 
Um, they can donate to any mutual aid funds in their area. Um, and they can, they can start by doing the reading and also talking to their friends and family about these things, talking about why we don't call the cops in this household or um, looking into the budgets of their cities. Um, there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of people who are doing this work, especially online right now. Um, but I would recommend starting there. Yeah. And we'll post in the show notes, those links so that people have an easy place to get to them right there. Perfect. You know, let's um, just, I just want to make sure that you get to talk about anything else you want to do while you're on this platform. So anything else you want to add before we wrap things up? Yeah, I guess I would say that um, I got the opportunity to co-create 8toabolition.com, which is, I think, a good starting point for a lot of people and has led to a lot of different people having discussions that they normally wouldn't. Um, so I would recommend, if you're totally new to this, I would recommend going to that site um, and just taking a look around. It's definitely, um, it's definitely not com- complete in terms of like, if you go to this site, you won't know everything that there is to know about abolition, but it is a really good starting point. And I think that what we created was really accessible. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll put the link to that on too. Thank you so much for coming on here, Kay, and sharing your time and your experience and your knowledge with me and with the listeners. And thanks for doing the work in the community. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.